Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is David Bumgara, and he is a senior finance executive working with cannabis companies, helping them figure out how they're going to grow and scale. Uh, David's had some pretty interesting experience in the cannabis world, uh, particularly on the uh, Canadian side. So we're going to hear about that. We're going to learn a little bit about his background and then what he's working on today with um, helping this growing, evolving, expanding cannabis market. So I'm excited for this conversation. With that, David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Nice, nice introduction. Nice to talk to you again. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. So let's do the background, kind of historically, what if, what what was your kind of training? What was your area of expertise? How did you get involved in cannabis? And then and then we'll talk a little bit about your experience in cannabis. Sure. So I'm a uh, certified or professional accountant here in Canada. I've been, uh, was designated, uh, I don't know, over 25 years ago. Was typically in the resource sector. I was CFO for a uh, Junior oil and gas uh, company, public company here in on the TSX um, Canada, and uh, I left there in 2017. Wanted to explore new opportunities, and um, shortly after I left uh, that oil and gas company, a couple of my contacts 
reached out to me indicating that there was a lot of um, opportunities growing in the cannabis space. And I got involved with my first cannabis startup back in 2017, late 2017. And uh, it was focused on extraction using a water soluble technology the company we were just about to get it started seed funded and uh, ended up selling it uh, pre any sort of after the seed round um, we sold it out to a public company on the uh, again here in Canada for 38 million dollar market cap in, in exchange for shares in this public company so I was in and out of a job fairly quickly uh, within six months. <laughs> I love um, it. You sold it before you actually got it launched. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the best right. way. And, uh, and so then moved on to another secondary startup. Uh, me and three other partners basically seed funded another cannabis startup, uh, kind of working on licensing some water-soluble technology with respect to cannabis and THC and we were going to license it to licensed producers across the U.S. So we were going into various states in the U.S. because it was more, obviously, the U.S. is a bigger market. And the opportunities were greater, and there seemed to be more, because it's more siloed in the U.S., where it's state-driven and it's not federally legal, the, every state had to have their own licensed producers, and each licensed producer were small-scale, and so it was an opportunity for us to, to build a, a business plan to partner and license uh, the technology to small licensed producers in various states. So we started off in Oregon. We acquired a company immediately after doing our seed round of financing of uh, a company that had CBD using our water solubility technology, putting CBD in water and selling CBD water in corner stores and grocery stores. And we launched that um, in partnership with the company that we acquired in Oregon. And then within four months of acquiring it, we uh, we took the company public, did a reverse takeover, got listed on uh, a junior board here in Canada called the CSX. A lot of cannabis companies, both Canada and the U.S., list on the CSX because it's, it's less of a regulatory um, restrictive uh, exchange uh, as well because it didn't have exposure like the bigger exchanges like the uh, Standard & Poor's TSX exchange and even their venture exchange. They weren't allowed to take on cannabis-related companies because of their federal exposure in the U.S. So a lot of the junior cannabis companies ended up going on the CSX. So we took this company, did a reverse takeover, got it listed, and then within three months or maybe four months of being on the CSX and trading, we got acquired by a um, group out of the Columbus, Ohio, backed by the Schottenstein family. And the company rebranded and became Green Growth Brands. And I stepped away from the CFO role at that point because the C-suite was moving down to Columbus and they were building the team down in Columbus. But I stayed on board as a sort of advisor from the financial reporting because nobody in Columbus had Canadian financial reporting experience. So they needed to leverage my capital markets and, and yeah. financial reporting knowledge here in the Canadian market. And it, the appeal to the Schottensteins group, um, again, because their business plan was to leverage CBD, topicals, creams, lotions, using their sort of experience on the um, on the L brand side, on the um, Bed Bath and uh, Beyond, yeah. 
and beyond stores using that type of methodology and expanding across the U.S. in malls across the U.S. with kiosks. And at the point of uh, just before COVID, uh, they were in over um, over 100 retail locations across the U.S., kiosks in the middle of the mall selling topical CBD products that had been developed in-house. And then obviously with COVID hitting, all the malls were shut down. Then that yeah. sort of uh, led to the, the collapse of green growth brands. And, and now it's sitting in Chapter 11, what's co- in Canada called uh, CCAA, but uh, equivalent is Chapter 11 in the U.S. Yeah. And so I'm helping the company just uh, with the securities accountants to the bankruptcy accountants to help liquidate the business, sell off the assets. And uh, in the meantime, I've relaunched my fractional CFO services and working with another, as I speak, another CBD startup on the extraction side, using an, a new extraction technology that's more scalable and uh, we're working at uh, partnering with somebody, a company in Vermont, and we're set buying a property in Colorado, and in conversations with people in California. So that's that's sort of what's happening right now in the in yeah. the cannabis space for me. I've got a couple other clients that are not in the cannabis space. One's a, what's a an AI technology startup that uh, I'm in conversations with as we speak. And then another is a transfer agent uh, helping them sort of build out their their back office and set up some more uh, rigor around their financial reporting. Yeah. Maybe you could walk us through a little bit about this reverse merger, the whole, you know, why the Canadian markets have been so important to cannabis over the last couple of years. You know, just for, for people that are not highly astute on the finance side, like why why did this happen? How does it work? And what has been the result, I guess, of, of how it's shaped the market? Yeah, I, you know, a lot of the U.S. Uh, cannabis companies, because the, the federal government in the U.S. has not legalized cannabis and a lot of the, but the states, there are a lot of states that have legalized it. Companies that wanted to raise capital beyond, you know, the seed round of capital needed to go to the public markets. And the only way they could go to the public markets was on a Canadian exchange, the CSX, which is not federally, uh, is not uh, tied to any federal legislation in the U.S., unlike, unlike NASDAQ and which are federally monitored, regulated by the SEC, and they weren't allowed to list companies that were not federally legal. So companies, cannabis startup companies in the U.S. found it an easier path to raise capital by doing a reverse merger into a what, what's called a shell, basically a, a dormant public company sitting on the CSX, or basically a dormant shell is sitting in Canada that could be relisted and taken public onto the CSX. And that was the sort of the quickest and probably the cheapest path to going public versus trying to work through the uh, the through the Nasdaq uh, exchanges and a lot of and the way for the US investors to participate and trade on those on stock on these type of companies because obviously it's not easy for a retail investor to invest in a stock that's sitting on a Canadian exchange because you'd have to specifically request that with your broker and there's some restrictions around trading and whatnot. A lot of these junior Canadian public companies that had a lot of U.S. US, uh, retail clients would co-list on the OTC uh, markets board 
and on the junior exchanges there on the what they call the QX and the QB exchange. And that was a way for U.S. retail investors to participate in Canadian public companies that uh, had U.S. exposure. So that was sort of the genesis of why the Canadian avenue became popular for a lot of junior cannabis companies in the U.S. So for the company, it was really about access to capital. Like they, they were at the point of needing needing to expand. They needed capital to expand given the federal ish, you know, situation in the U.S., you know they couldn't list on the on the on the US markets and i'm assuming that, that this was true sort of on the debt side as well because i mean we're talking about equities here how, how did how did the debt market play out or or how did you see the debt market develop for cannabis companies yeah i mean the the debt market um, companies could raise um, debt um, but if there was any sort of convertible feature to it then that's where you ended up uh, you wanted to have a a way for your debt holders to be able to convert the that into equity, and yeah. the only way to, for them to be able to trade on it would have to be on a Canadian exchange listed company versus yeah. uh, in the U.S. So even, the, even the debt markets needed that yeah. needed that vehicle at the end of the day. That's right. And and these these dormant companies were was there any rhyme or reason to to which companies were being reverse merged into or what, like what was, what was the logic there? Yeah, typically um, there's, there's a sort of a secondary market out in, out there that's, there's these dormant um, shells, what they call shells that are, were publicly traded companies. They were typically, they were mining companies, junior mining companies uh, that had been dormant for many years. And, there's a whole industry where people buy these dormant shells, clean them up, consolidate the share can the share positions of the of the shares holders, and there's sort of statutory limitations where I believe it's after ten years all the debt that uh, these junior public companies may have on their balance sheets would could be written off um, because they no longer could be collected on, and so you ended up with these clean companies that were. Mm weren't trading they weren't on an exchange you still have to make a you still kind of have to file a prospectus and a listing document to get them on um on the csx to get them listed but mm-hmm. they had they met all the requirements as publicly publicly available disclosure on these companies a certain number of shareholders that existed a certain number of shareholders that existed and the pals is typically you know, uh, half to a third of the time it would take to to do a straight IPO on a Canadian exchange, and, and the cost could be as cheap as twenty five percent to fifty percent cheaper than if you had to do an IPO from a legal and all of the regulatory compliance work that you would need to do. Sure, and, but these were not. I mean, these these were not cannabis companies that all of a sudden became cannabis companies because no, they, they got were, merged they into. Were, most of them are actually junior uh, mining companies that had, uh, because the mining industry for many years, uh, I want to say 10 to 15 years, has been somewhat uh, trading sideways, if not downwards. And so all these junior public companies that were in the mining space couldn't raise capital. They kind of got delisted. They they couldn't um, afford uh, even to file their regulatory quarterly statements. And so they became non-compliant. And then, then there's this, as I said, this whole secondary market where people buy these shells, clean them up, uh, consolidate the share position of all the shareholders, and then resell them once they've kind of cleaned up the shells. And 
and in the case of the Schottensteins, they we had done that previously. So when I start when a, me and the three partners, when we started our our the second cannabis company, we and I got it listed. It was basically ready. It was listed on the CSX, and that was the appeal for the Schottensteins because they could quickly acquire us for for a pretty uh, reasonable price in exchange for shares, of course, and then get relisted on the exchange. And we were up trading again within three months of, yeah. of the acquisition. So Got it. And that gives you access to the capital. Are there other industries that use this vehicle or is this a pretty common practice? Yes. A lot of uh, mining companies would go this route as well. Uh, and it's similar. What you're seeing now in the marketplace is sort of uh, an offshoot of this is there's this whole SPAC industry now. In the U.S. Yeah. and in Canada, it's called there's what they call CPCs or capital pool companies, where these companies get listed or raise capital, like a, a seed amount of capital. In this, in the case of the SPACs, there there's some huge SPACs that are yeah. uh, launching these days, and that seems to be the flavor of the month. But basically, there's you create this public vehicle, and then you find a target that you want to acquire, and then you do, or then they essentially do a reverse takeover. So it's a similar approach to going public versus a straight IPO. Um, and uh, sort of it's the, now that's sort of the flavor of the, of the month, uh, yeah. the way to go public. Are there downsides to this strategy or what's, what's the, what's the trade-off? Yeah. I mean, you, the downside is you've got some legacy shareholders that aren't, uh, that come across on, on the reverse takeover. And if you don't have that float tight, tightly controlled, you may have a bunch of shareholders that as soon as the stock is trading, you can imagine they've probably been sitting on that stock for 10, 12, 15 years with no hope of uh, making any uh, yeah. return on their money. And as soon as the stock becomes tradable, they kind of uh, quickly dump their stock. And so you put you have some downward pressure on your stock if you can't control that flow yeah. tightly once you get uh, listed. And so the trading can be bumpy in the early uh, in the early days if you don't have them locked up in escrow or or a tight float and, and yeah. know where all the shares are sitting. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, and and how? Uh, I mean, I mean, I think people in the industry know that the uh, pricing on these things have gone pretty pretty wild <laughs> the last two years. Yeah. I mean, give us a little take on, or, or give us a little bit of your kind of take on what happened. How did this happen? Like, what was the what were the dynamics that were in play the last couple of years in cannabis stocks? Yeah, I, stocks? I mean, it definitely there was. You know, it reminded me of the dot com boom back in you know the late nineties. Yeah. It had that same sort of feel to it in that the market got very frothy. Mar valuations were unsupportable there was the uh, companies were raising huge amounts of money on huge valuations with very little revenue with the promise that uh, you know with the opening up of the markets uh, that the, that the valuations would be support these growths and then you ended up with a lot of companies that are failing like in, that in the case of green growth brands you raised almost 200 million dollars executed started executing on the plan and for various reasons you know the market uh, kind of collapsed uh, pricing generally collapsed in the marketplace because people weren't meeting the sort of the the heady promises that uh, that they went out to the market with and that and there was various reasons for that i mean i think there was a lot of uh, assumptions that the market would immediately turn on um, in Canada and in the states. You know, I think when California went uh, wreck, 
there was a huge that was a big spike in in interest in the space and the belief was that you know with with california going recreational that um you know the valuation that was a huge market and valuations would go up and there was this huge unpent up demand um, and all of this black market activity would go uh, yeah. would go illegal and the reality is is the black market has just thrived in states yeah. like california and elsewhere and it's been very difficult for the governments to bring that off of the black market and bring it into the legal framework and they've created regulations and and so you ended up with this dichotomy where you've got all these public companies that are working in the in the in the legal framework have to comply with testing and and uh, all these rules and then you've got all this illegal black market activity which they, in some cases, their product was better than what was being sold in the legal market. The legal market's costs were huge compared to what was in the black market. The black market could underprice the legal market every day of the week. Yeah. And you know, I always say, if you had a guy and you were and your guy, you're buying your your black market cannabis from him versus going to the legal store, most people would stay with their guy, especially if their guy had better cannabis yeah. than what they could get <laughs> at the store. Better pricing and better cannabis. It's like, <laughs> yeah. why would you bother? And so that's that was the, you know, the I think that's when it all hit the fan and the market started realizing that it's going to take a lot longer for that black market to come off. And we've seen that in Canada as well. The, even though it's federally legal in Canada, there's still, you know, a sizable black market and the government's trying to crack down on it. And every week we we see reports of, you know, uh, the federal government's undercovered another black market uh, reseller, a grower, cultivator. But I think that's the challenge. It's it's going to take time. And in the meantime, all these companies who raise huge amounts of capital built out these huge scale facilities have this huge infrastructure and the revenue is not coming as quickly as they had hoped. Yeah, so they just they're just kind of underwater right now in That's terms right. of yep. not being able to support the growth projections they had originally made. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So, and how does that get, stuff get cleaned up? I mean, you mentioned you know the bankruptcy process in Canada. Um, I mean, in the states, it's complicated because of the federal legality. You know, cannabis companies don't have access to bankruptcy courts, federal bankruptcy courts. Like, how does this unwind or how does this change? Like how how do you deal with these situations where a company is underwater, but you know you've got a license that's restricted, you can't use certain restructuring vehicles? Like, what's the process for these companies? Yeah, I'm. I mean, I can only tell you what I've experienced uh, in that because in the case of Green Growth Brands, it's gone into Chapter CCAA here in Canada. Mm-hmm. It only captures the Canadian parent company, which is the publicly traded entities and the Canadian yeah. entities that sit underneath it. All of the U.S. entities that had operations south of the border are not captured under that legislation because, to your yeah. point, because they're not uh, in the U.S., it's not federally le- legal and therefore not federally legislated. So it's unknown to me how uh, these cannabis companies would file for Chapter 11 in the U.S. when they end up in financial difficulty without a Canadian parent. It's uh, I haven't seen 
what that process looks like. Yeah. So it's uh, it's an interesting question, but I, I honestly don't know the answer to it. Yeah. And and from a finance point of view, how how are cannabis companies similar, and how are they different from you know other industries? You know whether it's you know mining or other manufacturing industries, other consumer goods. Like how does cannabis make this whole finance thing you know more or less complicated? Well, I mean the one thing that cannabis has going for it versus you know when I look back at the dot-com bubble back in late 90s when I was living through that is that in the 90s it was you thought you had a market you everybody built a model and and sold their story based on everybody was going to be on the online and technology was going to be it but you didn't really know what the market and what business models would succeed and which ones wouldn't succeed and and would end up being the way the the industry and technology would move in the way in the case of cannabis you knew that there was a market there there was already a market it's just a matter of trying to convert that market into the legal framework and getting people to buy through the legal market versus the black market and so you know that there's a marketplace out there there's it's just a matter of how quickly you can capture that market and so from uh from just looking at those two different times and two different industries i would say the cannabis market had much more going for it and and there are companies that are being successful in the cannabis space that have been able to shift and and work within the frameworks that uh, that each of the states have put in place. And if you've raised enough capital and you kind of kept kept enough of your powder dry through this whole process of states becoming legalized, you're going to be the winner because then you'll be able to grow into those states that that are moving from medical to rack and you can what we're seeing now is the consolidation in the space you know a prime example of that is the is the Tilray and Afria merger that was announced last week is wow. there's going to be consolidation and that's that's one of the biggest consolidations in the space but there's there's small consolidations happening now as we speak because all these companies are struggling have restricted capital can't raise capital because their stock prices are underwater and uh, and the market's not uh, funding new startups or new capital raises very easily in the space so you're going to end up with all this consolidation happening in the industry which is just another sign of how the industry is starting to mature and moving away from the startup phase where you had Mm -hmm. the founders starting a public company didn't really know how to run a public company but they knew how to grow good weed and and then now the professionals are moving in the space so you know consumer packaged good professionals are moving into the industry taking over these companies know how to run companies and if there's a a viable merger proposition and they're they're buying and merging with other like-minded companies in the space yeah. What's what? I guess what's the strategy, or why why do these mergers and acquisitions? Like, what are, what are people hoping to get out of these? You know, these transactions. Is this a reduction of operating costs? Is this uh, consolidation of markets? I mean, what really goes into these, or what drives the thinking behind this? Yeah, I think it's a mix of all that. I, I'm. I think what you're going to see out of necessity over the next six months to twelve months is the consolidation in the industry is mainly to drive down costs. And and sort of get percentage uh, in the industry and and if you know if the federal U.S. federal government does pass some legislation to help uh, the cannabis industry uh, federally once the new administration comes into play, you know then I think 
you'll see the second wave of this industry. You're going to see an immediate consolidation of a lot of players and then and then the ability to raise new capital to expand because once it's fairly legal, a lot of the shackles in the industry kind of come off. And especially when mm-hmm. it comes to, for example, because it's not fairly legal in the U.S., all these companies have to set up distinct operations in every state because you can't cannabis can't cross state borders so you have to have a cultivation dispensary in every state that you want to operate when it becomes federally legal those sort of barriers across state lines would fall away and then you could end up having you know one cultivation facility for example in florida that could sell into arizona and texas and up the east coast and then you don't need to have facilities in every state that you want to operate you can just have your dispensaries and so you're going to end up with all these companies who've built all of this infrastructure all across the U.S. and, all, and every state going to need to consolidate and and uh, and partner up. Yeah, and and so what are you focused on right now in the cannabis industry as a, as a financial executive? What are you working like? What are you helping companies do and um, helping them kind of the challenges you're helping them overcome? Yeah, so in the same sort of uh, skill set that I bring to the table, help them raise uh, the seed capital, get the sort of financial house in order, and uh, and get them off the ground. I think, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense right now to take them public um, or do a reverse takeover because of the current uh, environment, but getting them seated, getting them started, getting them to pass their proof of concept. And then once the timing makes sense, then looking for a, a way to a liquidity event, if it's an IPO or reverse takeover, uh, getting bought out by a SPAC or, or some other scenario, depending on what the regulatory environment looks at, looks like at the time, those would be, you know, that's sort of the way I see it now is it right now it's just try to raise a minimum amount of capital, get the companies off the ground, get them through their proof of concept, get them sort of to cash flow positive, and then wait it out until markets improve. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. If people want to find out more about you and, get, and the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah. Um, they can visit my website, uh, PME, uh, Peter Mary Edward Consulting.ca, or uh, my other URL is Little Numbers. .ca, which uh, is a funny story to that. Uh, that's uh, my yard name that my one of my best friends gave me uh, many years ago. So <laughs> I, 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 I registered the URL. So I that's, love it. Yep. I love it. Great. Um, David, I'll make sure that the uh, URLs and everything are on the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Bruce. Good to talk to you. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.